Well, it's quite possible that Ralph Nader might be known to our day as Harriet Beecher Stowe was to hers, or Upton Sinclair to his. Each of these three books has had an impact over and beyond the book itself. Well, the book is powerful. Refer, of course, to Ralph Nadar's book, Unsafe at Any Speed. Uh, I think people have been aware, without inchoately in many cases, aware of the horror that is in the automobile. That is the goodness that is in the auto and helping us in our lives, and the horror that the thing becomes more important than the man. And as you know, Mr. Nadar uh, is now, his name's a household word, thanks in a way to certain industries, that uh, the auto industry particularly. And I think, Mr. Nader, the, the, the whole approach to your book, man as against the thing, the thing being the auto, and throughout your, your remarkably documented book is the idea that the thing, that is the sale of the thing, the automobile becomes the, the overwhelming item, not the safety of the man in it. And this, is this, is this, this seems to be the motivating factor throughout, doesn't it? Yes, as our society becomes more and more a technological one, uh, we have to cultivate an appreciation and a critical appraisal of the degree of inhumanity in our technology. And this, of course, applies uh, very close to home in our automobiles, uh, that for so many years the ideology of traffic safety peddled by many of our uh, safety organizations backed and financed by the auto industry has been to stress the necessity of the human to adapt to unsafe automobiles instead of the reverse, that is, that the engineering of the automobile must adapt <coughs> to the human and anticipate his limitations and even his failures. It was only when we began to blame the machine and not the working man in the factories that we began to design the machines with uh, guards, with fail-safe instruments and features, and a tremendous decline of fatalities and serious injuries in their factories ensued. We're just at that stage, 1966, uh, in the automobile and traffic safety area, where we're beginning to turn our attention to the machine instead of expecting a perfectibility uh, of human operation uh, of an unsafe machine. I think you point something out in your chapter, Second Collision. We can talk about the, uh, the, the implication of this phrase that, as you say, in factories we finally have reached the stage now where safeguard guards are needed. When it comes to something traveling, uh, the chariot, the machine, man seems to lose a sense of rationality uh, concerning his safety. Yes, uh, that's because uh, primarily our view of the automobile is that we take it as, it, as it's given. And any uh, degree of safety has to be uh, forthcoming from the driver. Uh, my view is that we should not take the automobile as given because it's much easier to design safer machines than to expect perfectibility in human operation. What people don't realize is uh, that uh, even the drunk who makes that fatal mistake uh, has probably made hundreds of thousands, indeed millions, of accurate driving maneuvers before that. And so what we're dealing with is a uh, perfectibility uh, of human-machine interaction when a driver drives a car that's pretty high. It's, it's, it's well over 99.9%. .9%. And so that the real payoff in safety is going to come uh, from designing automobiles that will reduce the risk of collision in the first place, such as better braking systems that will not skid or lock the wheels uh, and, and avoid uh, the emergency situation safely. But more important, uh, the design of a car to protect people in collisions if an accident occurs so that we can have safe or safer accidents. That's it's the called point. the second collision. The second collision. Basically, there are only uh, two ways an individual is killed or injured in an automobile accident. 
whatever causes the accident, whether it's the vehicle, highway, drive, or combination. There are only two ways in which an occupant can be killed or injured, and that's the way he interacts, strikes against the inside of his vehicle as the uh, car slams to a stop against a tree or another car, or his ejection through the vehicle if the door pops open. And therefore, whatever is the cause of the accident, all these factors which I mentioned, vehicle, highway, environment, driver, the vehicle is 100% the cause of the injury in an accident. You call this uh, DeHaven's Law. That is, it was De a man named DeHaven made this discovery as an airplane pilot. Yes, he discovered that the human body could take tremendous forces if it was only given a chance. That is, it takes a very little force for an ice pick to penetrate one's hand, but takes a great deal of force if the f surface is flat like the end of a baseball bat. Well, then why? Because this leads to a question. This was pretty obvious, was it not, after DeHaven's discovery to the industry, yet a thing like the safety belt or the non-tinted windshield, we'll talk about that too, the matter of status symbols at the same time leading to less safety. There still was opposition, wasn't there? Because it didn't sell a car, did it? That's right. There was opposition because uh, the, the manufacturers are basically profit seekers, they will try to get away with what they can in the marketplace. If they can keep peddling the same old automobile with a new dressed up feature uh, every year and get the same price or greater for it, uh, then they'll continue with their stagnant technology, with their lack of engineering innovation for safety. Kent comes along the seat belt and for years the automobile uh, companies ridiculed it, deprecated it, fought it, until they were compelled by legislation uh, to adopt it as uh, standard equipment in January 1964. Their claim always, of course, is that safety doesn't sell. The answer to that is twofold. First is, people are paying good money for their automobile. Safety should come built into the automobile as part of the quality of the product. It shouldn't be put out for a public opinion poll. Uh, secondly, I've yet to see an individual who go down to his dealer and tell him that he doesn't want uh, the brakes as safe as they are. He wants less safe tires. He wants a carbon monoxide leakage into his compartment so he can be put to sleep when he's driving. This is utter nonsense. People, of course, want the safest car possible and should come as standard equipment, uh, not as an extra cost option. Well, since you mentioned carbon monoxide leakage, there's one aspect of the book, too, that uh, you deal with pollution, the automobile, and the car, particularly in, in uh, Los Angeles. This would apply to all industrial areas, all areas of cars. Yes, the, the, the recent uh, report on air pollution in New York uh, uh, said quite unequivocally that uh, if, <coughs> if New York had the same uh, topographical and climatic as, uh, uh, environment as Los Angeles, it would be uninhabitable. It is only the, the wind flow, for example, that keeps uh, uh, people breathing in uh, New York. And, and here's an excellent example. The automobile for years have, has been polluting the atmosphere. It has been affecting the health of people everywhere. Uh, it has been affecting the, uh, the uh, capability and alertness of drivers. It has been reducing the vision on the highways. Sometimes highways close down because of smog. And yet, uh, it took year after year uh, of uh, agitation and criticism uh, by a few citizens, and particularly the Los Angeles people, uh, to wake the country up uh, to this threat of suffocation by automobile. Of course, these critics have taken their own beating. I speak now personally, and Ralph Nader himself. Uh, the critic has always uh, been the object of a campaign by those who are being criticized, and you were no exception in this case. It was quite a remarkable uh, phenomenon, it was, that uh, the attempt, w uh, was there an attempt to well, obviously, to get you to, to 
also buy you off? This is a personal matter. There was attempt to reach you, I suppose, in many ways, wasn't well, there? Well, uh, whatever critic uh, yeah. appears on the scene uh, concerning an industry, yeah. whether it's a pesticide, yeah. drug, or whatnot, industries have a patterned response. And first, they'll try to ignore the critic. Then if they, don't, if they can't ignore him, uh, they'll try to dissuade him one way or the other, uh, whether by temptation or by... Uh, uh, many of the other ways that they're capable of, of, of doing. And then if that fails, then they'll try to discredit him. Uh, and of course, the case against the automobile industry has been so overwhelming. Uh, never before in the history of the country has a industry been uh, so unaccountable to the public. It's the only transportation vehicle that doesn't have to adhere to federal safety standards, for example. It is a highly stagnant industry. It's hardly been a technological change worthy of the name since the 1930s, a fact admitted by several Ford executives two years ago. And yet, uh, they try to discredit uh, the critics. They try to accuse them of causing an economic depression. They try to, in a sense, uh, a, a di disillusion uh, their image before the public. Speaking of the safety councils of the various states, always the drive is toward the driver. That is, the target is the careless driver, isn't it? That's as right. As a result of which the automobile itself, the design and the safety of that is never involved. That's right. If you can blame it all on the driver, then the public's gaze is diverted uh, from the automobile's role and uh, from the necessity of a company who's making the profits of General Motors to continually innovate. Uh, look at your police accident report forms to show you how the law itself is vectored in on the driver and avoids including the vehicle's role. If you look at any police report form, uh, all of the list of uh, causes of accidents are in terms of driver responsibility or failure or error. The vehicle's role is not investigated, and this is the whole uh, fallacy, and this is the whole vulgarity of the National Safety Council statistics, which uh, repeatedly say that less than 10% of accidents are caused by vehicle defects. How would they know? Nobody investigates the defect. The only intensive pilot study made at Harvard gave the uh, vehicle the first role in uh, and causing the accident. Was and if, Ryan and Hart, was this no, Ryan? this is Mosley's study, for a four-and-a-half-year study financed by the federal government. And, of course, quite apart from what causes the accident, the vehicle is the entire cause of the, industry, of the injury in an accident. So it's the vehicle that becomes sacred rather than the man. At the very beginning, you quote in your preface, you quote Whitman, you know, all human life is sacred. And I think you, you're involved with something that you call the Bill of Bodily Rights. Yes, there's, uh, of course, in recent years we've heard a great deal about civil rights and necessity to pass laws to articulate them and protect them and enforce them. We've got government agents, agencies and private institutions dedicated to refining their enforcement and acceptance. And yet, how about in the area of bodily rights? That is, our industrial society now is getting to the point where we are being subjected to assaults on our physical integrity from all areas, from pollution, water, air pollution, lead contamination, radiation, uh, drugs, pesticides, the severe problem of soil contamination, chemical additives, and of course the great trauma, the great American meat grinder, the tragic American meat grinder called the automobile. This is what is called the assault on the human biosphere. And because it doesn't come directly from a man with a hood on his head, uh, or from a mean uh, group of people, but comes uh, diffused from the industrial society itself. We haven't yet taken our attention to it. Uh, we haven't yet tried to uh, control it. haven't yet tried to bring it within the rule of law. What industry has been doing in this area is this. It has been inflicting all of these social costs on the people, uh, in a sense, uh, selling their products for profit. And what is necessary is to make these social costs 
part of industry's costs uh, so that we, the people, don't bear the burden of these uh, ravages on our physical security, health, and well-being, so that industry can build their costs into their production and avoid these harmful effects and these hazards right before they are peddled into the marketplace. I think there's a quote you used by Justice Jackson at the time, the very point, that, you know, after the... Uh, after the Whitman quote, if anything is sacred, the human body is sacred, and this is the point of Ralph Nader, and Justice Jackson in 53, where experiment or research is necessary to determine the degree of danger, the product must be not be tried out in public, but but the public must be expected to possess all this knowledge. They must have... That's right. The Take, cost must have been bared by the industry. The, look at the automobile uh, traffic situation. The proving grounds up until now for the automobile companies have been the American highways. Many times there are hazards that, c that come out on cars, such as the dagger tail fins of the Cadillac and many others, where pedestrians and children were impaled. And letters to the manufacturers would receive the response, well, uh, we haven't had many complaints on this. That is, the answer is prove it by corpses that they're hazardous. Never, never prove it by engineering foresight. These hazards should never have been put out into the highway in the first place. If the engineer would be allowed to, to design the car, instead of the stylist designing the car as quack engineer, you'd have a safer car. So you come to this matter of style, the quack engineer, and there's so element of the public confusion. I think everybody knows about the dangers, but it's in court because of the confusion, the status aspect. You point out tinted windshields, like a colored refrigerator. A tinted right. windshield, you say, is less safe than a regular windshield. It reduces, uh, by a very substantial degree, the light transmittance through the window, and uh, the tinted windshield is an extra cost option that's pushed on consumers. So what you're doing is paying more in order to see less, and you're not even let no, you're not even informed about this fact. But also the element of status is involved here, isn't it? That's right. tinted windshield. That's right. And so have you sensed, now we come to the ads themselves, the TV commercials specifically, you know, most, most dramatically, have you sensed since your book and testimony a change in the ads is still, you know, the ads, I know your, your colleague O'Connell of, of uh, Illinois points out the TV commercials more, more the power, the strength, the human cannonball. That's Again, right. Look at look at the recent ad in a in a copy of U.S. News and World Report for Buick. Uh, the title of the ad was "Here is a howitzer with windshield wipers, almost like having your own type of nuclear deterrent." What kind of uh, information flow is that to the consumer for for a vehicle that is involved in thousands of deaths every year? This is viciously irresponsible, just as Professor O'Connell so eloquently stated. So this comes back then, Mr. Nader, to the subject of. Uh, the, those who make it, that is, make the cars and make the dough as a result of making the cars and making corpses. The, uh, have they been affected? Have you sensed a... Uh, well, the message, the message is finally reaching executive suite. It only took 40 years, but it's finally reaching it. Uh, we shouldn't be too surprised about the behavior of corporate management in this area because there's absolutely no deterrent up to this point for them not building unsafe cars uh, beyond a certain minimum level of safety. Uh, what, for example, would stop a manufacturer uh, from building a car with a uh, fuel tank that was made of onion skin? There's no statutory criminal penalty prohibiting it at all. Uh, yet, if a person is driving down the street and kills somebody recklessly, he can be sent to jail on a manslaughter conviction. Uh, so basically, beyond the minimum operational safety of the automobile, into the area where it's hard to detect hazards when they do materialize into death and injury, there's no deterrent. The automobile and the manufacturer are outside the rule of law. They are the only transportation vehicle in such an immune position, yet the driver is within the rule of law. 
he has to be licensed, he can be punished, etc. So it is in effect this unequal protection of the law, uh, this exemption of the most powerful segment of the transportation system, the auto industry, and this inclusion of in effect the users, those who have to bear the costs, uh, both in their pocketbook and with their blood and, and, and bones, those who have to bear the cost are those least capable of building safer automobiles. They're not in a position uh, to build them. So this comes back to your bill uh, of bodily rights, because something must happen to man with the fatalities in uh, such astronomical figures that man's attitude of life also becomes somewhat deadened. That's right. In this country, uh, life is cheapest on the American highway. Uh, in fact, as one lays uh, bleeding and dying on the highway, he's contributing to the gross national product because the accident service industry in this country involving doctors, uh, lawyers, repairmen, funerarial directors, uh, uh, and the whole uh, process of enforcement, uh, all of this uh, to service the accident uh, problem, and of course we have to have it serviced, but all of it uh, is an industry. It produces jobs, incomes, profits for uh, millions of people. Uh, and yet we don't take from this industry we don't tax ourselves and affect those of us involved in this industry uh, to try to prevent that which we are servicing uh, for income. Uh, there's no, in other words, dynamic impulse in the accident service industry toward its own self-liquidation uh, so that we have the situation where uh, our, our, the genius of our economy is such that we've actually accommodated uh, this tremendous uh, toll into an uh, a economic generator of jobs, skills, tools, services, and in effect, the costs of the accident toll are not such in the sense that they motivate converse or adverse behavior uh, to correct and reduce the cost. The costs are really non-volitional expenditures. And so that we can say 10 billion a year, it costs us 15 billion, but it's not gonna change until we put the cost, we make the cost pinch the foot that can change the situation. And we, make the, we throw the cost back onto the automobile companies uh, who can build the cars uh, that will eliminate uh, over 75% of all deaths and serious injuries, which occur now at collision impacts under 50 miles per hour. It's under 50, so the, 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 the vested interest in highway death then is increasing. The vested interests in, in death. Yes, all of the incentives, yeah. in other words, for all the skills, whether they're medical, legal, yeah. I know in the legal profession, the incentives are for lawyers to go in and to represent clients after the blood is shed. There are no incentives for lawyers to move in and try to eliminate this problem, prevent this problem, which is really the highest uh, function of the law. Uh, the problem is how do you get uh, the country funneling funds in the area of prevention by building a safer engineered environment of the highway in the vehicle? Uh, if you can build a safe vehicle that will protect people up to 50 miles per hour, which we certainly can today, economically and attractively, you can cut the motorist death toll by three quarters and cut the serious injury by three quarters because that is the speed level at which three quarters of all deaths and serious injuries occur. Even if we don't reduce a single accident, you see, we can cut the death toll. Well, this happened in Connecticut. Hasn't there been a... Uh with Ribicuff, hasn't there been a, a speed limit in the state of Connecticut? Yes, there was a sharp enforcement on drivers in Connecticut. Licenses were suspended on first uh, conviction for speeding. Uh, it is the most stringently enforced state, and yet what has happened? Uh, under Governor Ribicuff's uh, uh, tenure as governor, the accident injury rate actually went up. 
and the uh, fatality rate stayed about the same. So it still comes back to the car itself, the product, as, right. well, as, the, as well as the driver. That's what, that's what Senator Rivkoff has realized, that uh, there is a certain diminishing returns on the driver. Uh, you will always have a certain tiny percentage of mistakes by drivers, which add up to this tremendous toll. Uh, and uh, the best payoff in safety comes from a safer design uh, automobile, which will protect people even if they make these mistakes. But something else happened. A new kind of American has come into being, who you describe as the auto buff, the many motor magazines. And there, there seems to be sort of a glee in the, in the uh, lack of safety, in the dangers. You point to uh, Denise, uh, Denise Mack, I call her, yeah. Yes, yeah, so this is the attitude toward the Corvair. Now, for example, one or two of these magazines currently are defending the Corvair. They like the Corvair because it's a challenge to their driving expertise. But, you know, 99% of the drivers uh, don't exactly qualify for the Shell 3000 rally. Uh, they're, they're drivers that uh, deserve a tolerant vehicle, not one that strains them and uh, requires them to go beyond their point of control uh, in manipulating the vehicle adequately. So it's a seeking. Here, here's a, a group, as I imagine the Indianapolis Speedway race would have, too, who look for the actual courting of death, in a way. Yes, in a sense, yeah. they, they try to turn automobile uh, racing into the type of thrill of uh, mountain climbing, only more hazardous. But coming back to the auto and, say, the non-thrill-seeking driver, uh, the man, the woman who uses the auto, uh, you point out that the design was always made Somewhere I could underline, design the vehicle, forgot the driver. Oh, it's always been that then, hasn't it? The, uh, That's right. Basically, in this country, we're making much too much of automotive transportation. One out of every five retail dollars goes to our automotive transportation system. Uh, this is not a subject uh, uh, for happiness. It's a matter of concern. It's an indication of really how inefficient uh, our system is in getting around on the ground. Almost one-fifth... Uh, of the uh, gross national product has to be devoted to this. Now, in the old days, uh, societies made a great ritual and went to great expense individually uh, to get water for themselves. And we still see the biblical images and how much time was devoted to getting water. Now water comes as a public service. Hardly anybody gives a thought when they turn on the faucet. And this is what we're going to have to move into in, in our automotive transportation system. We've got the technology now. It's just a matter of whether we want to, want to eliminate the obsolescence of the system, make it far more efficient, and make it more routine, faster, less of an expensive status symbol, less of a bloodshedding uh, uh, system, and get around and devote our human uh, uh, time and attributes and responsibilities to more fundamental and more creative endeavors. The idea of how much time in this country is spent in an automobile uh, is an example of the waste of the system. A man washing his car every Sunday morning with such love and tenderness. By the way, you mentioned obsolescence. Uh, you used the phrase, one of, one of, the, uh, one of the engineers, a stylist, used the phrase dynamic obsolescence. This is mean planned obsolescence. Yes, there's nothing wrong with meaningful obsolescence in the sense that next year's car is much safer than last year's car because of engineering innovation. But unfortunately, obsolescence in the auto industry has meant trivial obsolescence. It's meant the type of obsolescence that women are well aware of when they don't like last year's hats and they prefer this year's hats. 
It's a type of facial uplift, uh, which is costing the motorist over $700 uh, in the cost of his new car alone every year. And just to change the rear end stylistically of a Mustang will cost Ford some $50 million. When you consider the markup, that by the time it reaches the consumer, you can imagine the tremendous sums uh, for this trivial uh, style change. If they put that money in braking systems and safer tires and, and more crash-worthy designs, uh, there would be much less bloodletting on the highway. Coming back to that theme again, aren't you? All the time, the effort, the energy spent on trivia, and in this case, a little change in auto, the symbol, the status symbol, right, and could be spent something more creative than man. It comes back to no another loss, another waste. So it comes back to the theme that made you the, the central figure in Washington and that caused upheavals in the auto industry, and unsafe at any speed, pinpointing responsibility. There's a case here, and it was the Comstock case, it was in, yeah. where an accident happened, but the man way, way up never really felt the blow. That's the problem. The problem here is, is to make uh, people in, these, in auto companies responsible for the decisions that they make. Now, you get this phenomena over and over again. At the top level, the presidential, vice presidential level, the answer always comes back, I didn't know about it. I wasn't told about it. At the lower levels of the corporate hierarchy, the answer is, well, we were just a part of the decision, or we just took orders from someone else. So this type of endemic irresponsibility within these vast corporate bureaucracies, and they are vast. General Motors, for example, grosses more than any other government in the world outside the United States, Soviet Union, and Great Britain. It, its gross returns are greater than the whole economy of Brazil. It grosses over $2 million an hour. These are gigantic... $2 million an hour? Yes. These are gigantic bureaucracies where responsibility is diffused and not uh, pinpointed. And when you get that type of diffusion and irresponsibility, obviously you're going to get the type of sad performance that's come out of the auto industry and the products that they sell. Then in the reverse, the man on top says he didn't know. In the reverse, the little man, the service station owner, somewhere in one of the cases in this Comstock case, he was a little man just following orders. That's right. So here we have Eichmann again, don't we? This is a kind of petite Eichmannism that operates uh, throughout uh, this industry, which now is, uh, is starting to wake up to itself, I think. And if, if, if it begins to be required, if the auto industry is required to meet external standards of performance, uh, as it uh, should, uh, then I think it will start to wake up and uh, fulfill the promise of the industry, liberate the engineering imagination that's now suppressed within the industry so they can produce safer automobiles and cleaner automobiles that don't pollute, pollute the atmosphere. Well, have you sensed any change, uh, Mr. Nader? Have you sensed since your book and the impact and the testimony? Do you feel there has been an effect on the upper echelons. There's no question that now in executive suite, safety is the number one topic uh, when it never was a topic at all. Uh, and the research funds now are being beefed up. Uh, there's more activity in the, among the safety engineers. There are more facilities being built. Uh, but we shouldn't be too bemused by this. Uh, this is a type of momentum that can dry up very quickly. The pressure must be kept on. The laws must be passed through Congress, fundamental, meaningful laws, not what I call no-law laws uh, that have a ha happy-sounding title but little substance. The Congress uh, this year will be uh, passing a uh, highway safety law, the first one in history. And if it is a strong... The federal. That's right. And if it is a strong one, and one that uh, provides for uh, research and development uh, by the public in this area to constantly goad the industry into what's feasible and what's necessary, uh, then I think we'll get a continuing momentum. 
You know, when I believe it, though, is when, as I watch a baseball game, a World Series, and I see the TV commercial of the auto, when I see instead of, say, the sexy little girl with a wet, open mouth, you know, the, or, or the guy says, we're a human cannonball, or what you said, they were like the power of a nuclear deterrent, when I see a safe, I haven't heard the word safety yet used in the TV commercial. Do you think that may be next? I think that's coming, yes. I think you're beginning to see it now in uh, magazine advertising or newspaper advertising. And, uh, and perhaps uh, since the auto companies, particularly Mr. Ford, is uh, going around the country blaming the recent dip in auto sales, uh, which is a very temporary dip uh, on the uh, safety issue, then perhaps they'll realize that uh, perhaps the people are conscious of safety, that they will defer uh, decisions if they think that they're going to get a safer car next year. I think this is a healthy development. I think a type of a demand for safety is one that the industry can well recognize. This is interesting. They will recognize where it hurts in the purse. Yes. But uh, it's also significant that there was this drop. Then the fact that you and your colleagues, you know, and Trippie, you, uh, have touched on this nerve that people have been aware of it, you know, maybe inchoately. Well, of course. Uh, the people are now awakening uh, to... Uh, the many uh, friends and kin that were killed and injured in automobiles, and they're beginning to say, if we had a safe automobile, even if that accident happened, uh, my aunt or uncle or daughter or son would still be living today. Uh, they're starting to be aware of the inhumanity that's built into current automotive technology and the automobiles that they drive around in, the callousness and the indifference that these products represent. And I think once they become critical and demanding uh, of the necessity for safer designed vehicles, uh, then the manufacturers will have to uh, respond to that demand. But, you know, an interesting fact here is this is, uh, uh, pervades our entire society. Uh, how many times ha have people fallen, say, in bathrooms and hit their heads or their arms on sharp points of plumbing? And the, answer, the, the criticism is, oh, why did I fall? Or, oh, why did this happen to me? And never is, why did the uh, designers of the, the American bathroom uh, uh, design such hazardous environments? And our homes are full of this problem. So until we become critical of the material environment, which we have to interact with in our daily lives, we're going to continue to reduce or to keep low the incentive of manufacturers uh, to produce consciously uh, safer, vehicle, uh, safer vehicles, safer products, safer furniture, safer plumbing, etc. So it's clear that Ralph Nader has written more than a book about an automobile, uh, that the auto is really a metaphor for something else, for all the things that are more important than men. We come back to the Walt Whitman phrase, if anything is sacred, the human body is sacred. Precisely. It's so a significant microcosm of a much broader assault on our physical security. So if we come back, perhaps before you leave, I know you are involved in, in many things. Well, would be because of the book and its implications. By the way, the name of the book, uh, in case you, people don't know, it's Unsafe at Any Speed, Engrossment of the Publishers, and it's uh, a powerhouse. It's uh, aside from the documentation, the drama and the horror, and the possible hope, too, is there. If we come back to what is the underlying text of the book, this Bill of Human Rights, of bodily, ri bodily rights you're talking about, how, how, how then? What's the next step? What would you suggest? Uh, for the public to attain, you know, to implement this bill. I think the, the, the major step is to begin translating uh, the, the uh, uh, great advances of science and technology into everyday terms in terms of how much safer our environment can be. Isn't it amazing 
that now we do have solutions for pollution. We have solutions for, against uh, uh, pesticide afflictions. We have solutions to uh, see the uh, to limit the hazardous effects of chemical additives, etc. We have the technological capabilities. All we need now is the will uh, focused through our government and through our private uh, economy uh, to implement them. Uh, so that we have the tools, unlike other periods of history where we're searching for the tools, we have the tools, we have the knowledge. Now we must have the uh, social and political and economic processes that will translate them into effect. And there's nothing that can do this quicker uh, than translating the awareness of this uh, throughout the, uh, the, uh, the uh, polity, throughout the society. Once the awareness is there, once people know how little it takes to make a safer car, then this demand will begin building up, building up, and uh, the, the Congress and other legislative bodies and people who represent us in the political framework uh, that will bring these uh, hazards unto, under control uh, will respond. There, then, is the theme, the sense of awareness, public awareness, and the pinpointing of personal responsibility where it belongs to, and the government, as well as people being involved. Unsafe at any speed. Subtitle is The Designed and Dangers of the American Automobile by Ralph Nader, our guest this morning, and Grossman, the publishers. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Nader. Thank you.